With that, let's pray, and then we'll look at Luke chapter 1. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, we uh, thank you for the season as we enter into the the Christmas holidays, Lord, which um, are are packed with um, just lots of fun activities and music and and time with family and friends. Uh, Lord, we do pray that you would help us to... um, to learn from Dave Johnson's mistake of not honoring the birthday uh, guest or the, the, the birthday boy, so to speak. And so, uh, Lord, we do pray that you would help us um, this holiday season, Lord, to, to keep our eyes on Christ. And Lord, as we participate in all of the, the Christmas things, Lord, that you would help us um, to recognize the, the significance of the birth of Christ and his coming and um, the implications that there are um, as we uh, reflect upon his first coming, as we wait upon his second coming. Lord, I pray that you would do a work in our hearts this Christmas season. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. <laughs> All right, Luke chapter 1, verse 1. <clears throat> Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. These, they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now it happened, while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zacharias said to the angel, how will I know this for certain? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. The Lord answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. The people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them 
and remained mute. When the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant, and she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. And Father, we do thank you uh, for this day. We thank you for your word. We ask that you would help us as we work through this story now. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right. Um, so so we're, entering into, we're entering into the Gospel of Luke as we've, 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 we've just seen. I'm, not, I'm still figuring out how we're going to navigate the next couple weeks, but we're, we'll be in the first couple chapters um, sort of up to Christmas. And then the week after Christmas, Josh Manning and their family will be with us, and so we'll, we'll be done with Christmas. Um, I, I need to confess, you know, this is, uh, we, you know, we go through books of the Bible as we've been going through Mark. We're, we're getting closer to the crucifixion. This has happened before going through the gospel. It always seems like by the time you, you know, you start the gospel in the beginning of the year, by the time you get to the end of the year, you're getting towards the crucifixion story, and it's like, ah, it just seems a little bit weird doing the crucifixion story as the Christmas tree goes up and you start celebrating Christmas. Um, and then I find myself in this dilemma, like, are, do, we push, do we push through? Do we take a break? And so I opted for a break. And, and there, there's something about taking a break, hopping into the story, um, hopping into the, you know, I, I, I love what Dave shared, you know, kind of like there's a birthday party, you don't even acknowledge a guy. And we, we tend to go into we tend to go into Christmas. You know, we we as soon as in our family like Thanksgiving is over, the Christmas carols start, and you can kind of get into the the holiday spirit. Um, but there's something also about the familiarity familiar familiarity. I get it right. It just sounds so weird saying it um, of the story that we we're just sort of like inoculated to the to the things and the significance, and it's like. Oh, I don't want to just, you know, this is, I realize this is my uh, 12th Christmas at this church, and it's like, here we go again, same old story, and, and, and it, it, it's almost like, how do we guard our hearts from getting this way? We, you know, we, th- this is a, a, a huge a, a historical event that changed the whole world that Jesus came to earth. He wasn't created at his birth. He existed in eternity past, and he stepped into creation. His advent, uh, which this is the advent season, which, which advent means coming. Traditionally, advent, um, it, it was a season to sort of take four weeks to, to focus on our, our waiting um, for, for really the second coming of Christ, that it's a reminder that he came once, and we're awaiting his, his return. Christmas is not something that the early church celebrated at all. Uh, I think the, the first historical event was like AD 390-something, so we'll just call it the 4th century. In Rome is the first, like 400 years after Christ's coming is when we have the first sort of historical event of where Christmas sort of kicked off and, and stuck. Um, and, and so my, my prayer is that as we look at the story, that, that we would really look at it fresh and, and not just sort of go through the motions and that we would recognize the, the significance. And so with that, in Luke chapter 1, it's always important to read the first few verses uh, to sort of set um, the stage of, uh, of what Luke is writing. And so he writes... And as much as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished amongst us. So, so uh, uh, us, he's speaking to his generation, the, the people who lived and existed during this time. Uh, we know about the author, that, it, that it's Dr. Luke. He was a physician that um, sort of got caught up in the, the story. He met the apostles and then he started following them and History now records that this physician is now known as a historian because of his, his detail, um, the, the research he did, the, the interviews, and he basically places the story before us 
in sort of an, an exact manner between the Gospel of Luke and Acts. He lays it out in chronological order. I'd love it uh, for those of us that like to hear a story as it sort of happened. Uh, he did this for us. And he said, you know what? There were, there were many people that, that undertook to, to compile this account of the things which happened among us, N- namely the birth and life, death, and resurrection of Christ. This, and then the, the things that happened uh, in the early church following his resurrection and ascension. And it says, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the Lord. So th- this, this account isn't something that was um, sort of made up in folklore, uh, fairy tale, just a sort of a feel-good story. Luke is saying, no, we were handed down this information from eyewitnesses. I spoke to those and interviewed those uh, who saw precisely what happened. Um, They were servants of the word. And it seemed fitting for me as well, having having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. And so he says, you know, I've done all this information. I have all of this research. It, it reminds me of the book, The Case for Christ. You know, Lee Strobel was this guy. He was a journalist. Um, his wife became a Christian. He was really upset about it because he felt like there was a little bit of uh, a bait and switch. He, he married his wife. He's not a believer. She wasn't a believer. They had a certain lifestyle, and she goes and becomes a Christian on him, and it changed how he felt like their marriage and their life would operate. And so he felt like the best thing he could do was to investigate Christianity because that's what he was. He was a courtroom reporter. And so he, he, at a very scholarly level, went to interview all of the experts on both sides with the intent of disproving Christianity. And through the process, the evidence was overwhelming and he became a Christian. And now he's a pastor, so it's kind of funny. And, uh, but it wasn't until after he did all of this that his, his peers were like, you have done this extensive research. You need to put this into a book so that others can have this information. And it's almost like this is what Luke is saying. He's like, listen, I, I was on the sidelines. I'm a physician. And then as I encountered the apostles and I started hearing all, all these eyewitness accounts and doing my own research and investigating the claims and what they're saying about Jesus, that I, I needed to put this into written form. Um, and he says in verse 4, the purpose of this, so that you may know the exact truth about the things that you have been taught. And, and, and this, is, uh, this is huge. Um, this, this is a, a powerful introduction. Um, his introduction sort of rips the carpet out from the feet of those who say, oh, this is just a fairy tale. This, these are things that are, are made up. Um, the, it, folklore stories that people told around the campfires. It's, it's a way to uh, make us feel better. Um, the, the problem with that, if that was the case, Luke and the apostles, when they write about Jesus, they'd linked Jesus to specific geographical locations. They tied him in to, uh, we'll see today, uh, historical events that if it was made up, um, it would be so easy to disprove. The, the problem for the skeptic is that all, all, like today, like even just last week, I didn't get the full story, but they just discovered a, a new artifact. You know, the guide that we used to Israel, they just discovered a new artifact Yet another thing, confirming the evidence in scriptures, what they said, they found something concerning the King David in the city of David, and it's just as they dig and they unearth things, the evidence is there supporting the claims of the Bible. It's remarkable. It takes more faith to reject the claims of the Bible, I believe, than it does to acknowledge and to bow the knee to the claims of the Bible. And so Luke makes it very clear that this, that this is not a feel-good um, story like uh, 
you know, the bearded guy, the tooth fairy, these things that we make up. Jesus is a historical character that lived, breathed, history recorded him. He changed the world as we know it. Regardless of where you stand, Jesus transformed the world. And so now we look at verse 5, looking at history. And so for for us, the first few verses or the first few words of of verse 5 can be lost on us. But when Luke wrote this, it would have had a huge impact. I mean, he says, "In, in the days of Herod, king of Judah. So Judah is, is a, a region of the Middle East and in Israel, and we're told that there was a king. And we're told that his name was Herod. And if you go into history and you start researching Herod, you're going to find a bunch of Herods. This is Herod the Great, that is known as Herod the Great. There's all sorts of historical evidence that verifies that this man existed um, for, for those of us, um, you know, we, well, the, I already said Herod the Great. So why was he great? Well, the, the only greatness about him was that he was a prolific builder. I mean, he, he rebuilt the temple. He um, set the port at Caesarea. Um, to, I didn't list all the things, but he's got stuff all over the Middle East. These huge, cr- crazy places that he, from, that he built, like Masada up on this huge cliff, this fortress and we look at the ancient people, and we have a, we, we have a, um, a, I don't know what it is, a, a, is it ageism? Is it, uh, we think, oh, they're from 2,000 years ago. They were really ignorant people. They, 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 they were foolish. They were gullible. When you look at the stuff that this guy built, like, this is pre-Caterpillar. Like, huh, like, how, like, even with slave labor, how do you pull off the things that he built? I, like, I don't know these. I mean, huge aqueducts. And, and it's not like the guy was really old. Like he, he was able to do all this stuff in an incredible way. And, and that's where his greatness ends. I mean, this, this was an evil, evil man. The, 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 he was so evil like the only thing that Christians really know about Herod is that he was the guy who, after Jesus was born, put out the order in Bethlehem to, to kill all of the little boys under two years old. So Christians know that story, but if you look in the history books and you try to find that story elsewhere, you can't find it. Like, like you, you can't find the story of, of Herod killing the little boys in Bethlehem. Now, before you go, oh, there's an inconsistency in the scriptures. It's, that's not at all. Um, like, world news, there was, a, there was a stabbing this week, right? Uh-huh. You guys are all thinking London, huh? There was one in Oceanside. <laughs> like, like, all over the place. Like, um, the things that he did were so horrific. That killing it, like 20 or 30 little boys in a tiny little town, that didn't even make the news. Like, who, who cares about that? That's, historically it was um, Erdesheim with this, this famous uh, Jewish scholar. He said about him that as long as he'd lived, no woman's honor was safe and no man's life was secure. Uh, the, the, the people of the day, there was a say that it, was, it would be safer to be a pig in Herod's palace than to be one of his sons. He was a crazy, evil, wicked. Like, it doesn't get any darker than to have this guy as your king. And so we really need to be careful when we talk about the leadership of our country. I don't care what side of the aisle you're on, uh, who's in charge, like, we start throwing around, like, you know, Hitler's real popular. It's like, come on, like, we don't have anybody close to Hitler. Like, come on, guys, really? You know, like, and Hitler was like a saint compared to Herod the Great. And so for those who read this, now Herod died shortly thereafter of, uh, after Jesus' birth. So when they would read this story in the days of Herod, 
king of Judah. So now we're in like AD 60 when he's penning this, referring back to the things that happened. I can just see like the grandma and grandpas of the day, like going, you don't even understand how bad it was. Like I think of Anna, like Anna grew up in Spain. And so when she was there, the grandma and grandpas that were alive and imprisoned and stuff during Franco, she was like, like the stories that they would tell. And, and so when Luke is writing, this is like the grandma and grandpa are like, oh, you guys, you think his kids were bad. The kids are nothing compared to who he, like horrible. And so this is, this whole story is so anchored into history and geography. Like, you can't, you can't put all of these details in there for it to be fake because it would be so easily disproven. And so we enter into the story. We find ourselves in the beginning of Luke really during the life and times of the Old Testament. Uh, during this season of, of, of history, we look at this season as what's referred to as the silent 400 years. Uh, when the Old Testament ended, you know, from we have the end of Malachi, which is not in chronological order, but the prophets stopped speaking. And 400 years went by with not a word from God. And the times just got darker and darker and more evil and more violent. And this is the period where our story picks up. And then the camera, so to speak, it's going to pan away from Herod to a ray of light. In the midst of this darkness, there was light. There was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. So for those of you that went through the Old Testament and you read through Chronicles and you got all the lineages, you'll suddenly go, oh, I, I don't remember that guy or that, that tribe. What they're telling us, there's a priest. This is his name. He was connected to this order. And as they maintained for the spiritual care of Israel, they did certain things, namely, um, well, we're, I'm getting ahead of myself, but they connect this guy, Zacharias, as a priest, which you could document, of the division of Abijah. And then we're told that he had a, a wife from the daughters of Aaron. So this is a pastor's kid. So she comes from, she's married to essentially what we would know as a pastor, and she comes from a line of pastors. This is a, a godly couple, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. And so we have this evil man, Herod. It doesn't get any darker than Herod. And then we have this, this couple that is living and walking, and, and, and their whole lives um, have been given to the Lord. That he's a, he's a priest, and we're told that in the sight of God, that they were righteous, that they did all things right, that they walked blamelessly, that, that, that they lived according to the law. What the, what the Old Testament told them to do, they, they did. And they served and loved God faithfully. But there was a little storm cloud over their lives. But they had no child. And to be childless during this culture was sort of... Um, I don't want to say it was a scarlet letter, but, but there, there was a it, it was a, it was a mark on your life that, that for some reason God hadn't blessed you and it was probably because there was sin or something in your life that God had chosen um, to, to not give you a child. Um, and we see that the reason is because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years, so they were elderly. And during this time, elderly, I don't, not to be offensive, but elderly in that culture meant 60 and above, like you were done. Like, like 60 was, you're nearing the end of the, your life, and you are old. And, and uh, I know that 60 is a new 40 or whatever, or four, like, uh, 
But, but then they were advanced. This is that they're at the very end of their life. A- and when we look at the meaning of their names, I think this is significant. Zacharias means that God remembers or Yahweh, Yahweh remembers technically. Basically, this, this picture of God's faithfulness. Um, Elizabeth means my God is an oath. A- and so here's this picture of this this righteous couple sort of, it makes you wonder what they felt, like, which the Bible doesn't tell us what they felt about not having children. It does point it out that there was no children, and we see Elizabeth's reaction at the end. Um, she says that God, at the end of the story, is saying that God has removed her disgrace. And so it, it gives us some insight about how they, they, they did feel about it, that, that this was a, a shameful thing, a painful thing. And yet in the midst of that, they walked faithfully and consistently with the Lord regardless of the the trials within their life, which I think in there, there's a lesson for us. Um, In the sweeping picture of, as we look at the announcement of John the Baptist, which you're like, Gunnar, what does this have to do with Christmas? Um, This, in the midst of darkness, we see that God was working. He was moving. He was doing something, and it would have been very difficult for the people to see, but God, in fact, was uh, working. And so we read in verse 8, Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed, the appointed uh, order of his division. Um, so I'll pause there. So uh, twice a year for one week, all of the priests would sort of they would have to report to duty. Like they would, they would, the temple went um, year round, but there, there were times when they would do their duty. So he went twice a, twice a year for one week for a total of two weeks. And so he had his duty. I think of like the military, like the reserves, like he had to do his reserve time. And so he goes in to do uh, his, his duty. And then we're told in verse nine, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And so the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside, um, were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. Okay, so, um, so to be a priest wasn't really that big of a deal. There were a huge amount of priests. Um, he was from a small town down in the southern region. He came up for his priestly duty. And then he was selected by Lot to go do this, this incense offering. Now, this was a big deal. So it's, it's estimated that there were co- conservative estimates say that there's between eighteen and 20,000 priests total. Um, divided by, there's 24 divisions and 750 men in each division. Um, when they got there for this duty, basically... They would roll the dice. I mean, they, they drew lots to see whose turn it was to go in, not to the holiest of holies, but just outside of the holiest of holies. Um, if, you're not, if your lot was drawn, this was a once-in-a-lifetime experience. It was, it was winning the lottery. It was a, a huge deal. Now, we have some slides I want to show you guys just so you can just help your imagination here. Um, if we can go to the next slide. Okay, that's, can we kill the lights? That's really bright. Um, Let's see, who's the, Dave's going, Dave's, it's a race, it's a foot race. <clears throat> okay, so this is the area, uh, it's, it's still going. Thanks, Dave. Okay, so we're on the Mount of Olives, and this is the, the eastern wall of the Temple Mount. There's the Dome of the Rock, which is basically where the temple would have been. We're, we're standing on the Mount of Olives looking down, the Kidron Valley runs uh, between the two, now go to the next slide. Where are we going to go? So this, to orientate you, this is a, a model of the time of Jesus' life. So that, where that last picture was taken was up here on this hill, the Mount of Olives. This is the Kedron Valley that goes through here. Um, you can, this is the eastern wall. And then this finger here, you guys see that finger? Um, that is actually the city of David. That's Jerusalem during David's time. And... So you have the big, huge, I mean, I forget how many football fields it is, 
but it, I mean, like, I think it's like seven or ten football fields. It's a huge, massive area. In the middle, there was the actual temple. And so there's courtyard around it. There's a temple on the inside. Then you have this huge, uh, the western wall, um, which today's picture. So right here where my, you know, the little dots always shake right here. But that little section right there, that little tiny intersection. We're going to go to the next slide to a picture that you'll recognize. And so this is the western wall or wailing wall that where my little dot was shaken. This is the little section that we're talking about. These are not ants. Those are humans. The kind of the, the, the magnitude of the size of this wall. And, and this is King Herod who built this. I mean, this is Herod's temple that he expanded it to make it vast. And so today the, the, the people flock here. I think this is Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, they flock here. Because now it's Muslim controlled. The Dome of the Rock is right over there, just to orientate you a little bit. And so this is the, this is, this is the closest that the Jewish people can get to the holiest of holies. And that's why they flock there. There's now a spot underground that they've excavated. Um, the Jewish people are, it's kind of, uh, I don't say dangerous, but it stirs the pot, so very few do it. But, but they are... Uh, there's a certain sect of Jews that are allowed to go into the temple ground, and when they go in, they just do a prayer walk around the perimeter for fear that, that they don't want to step onto the holiest of holies. Okay, now next slide. Okay, oh man, this is really uh, bleached out here. Um, okay, so here we have the temple, the temple area. In the center here, this is the actual temple. Uh, let's go to the next slide. We're going to zoom in a little bit. That's a little bit better. So now we're looking at the temple. Um, I believe it's number four. It's the spot right there where the altar of the incense was located. And then number three, it's hard to see, but that was the, the, the veil for the holiest of holies. And so the, the story that we're talking about is all, the people would have been all around the outside of the courtyard because they're, they're, they're in the courtyard in the temple area. They, this whole multitude of people would have been out here. A lot of people would have been in here. And then we come in here to where the priests were allowed, um, still outside. But Zacharias is going to make his entry into the temple um, alone to spot number four, which is just outside of the holiest of holies. And let's go to the next slide just to kind of see. Okay, so that I should. Okay, so now we're, we're zoomed in. Um, Number four, the altar of incense right there. There's a veil there. And then the holiest of holies is, is before. So um, now we can turn on all the lights. Hopefully that helps you kind of see. You know, we'll leave it up. Uh, we won't leave it up there. As long. So we'll leave it up so that at the end you guys can turn around and see the back. It's way on the TV back there. It's better. Um, okay. <clears throat> so where are we at? Verse, not, let me just pick up verse 9. So according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord at burn incense. So he was chosen by lot to go into the area, to that number four, all alone, to, to burn the incense. And verse 10, and the whole multitude of people were in prayer um, outside at the hour of the incense offering. And so this is a big deal. Uh, verse 11, and an angel of the Lord appeared to him. This is the angel Gabriel. So he goes inside for his first time. This isn't like something they did every weekend. And this is once you go in there, you're done. And so he knows his job. I imagine he's like shaking with excitement. He's an old man. This is like he's won the lottery. He can go in. He can burn. Like this, they've heard stories about this place. And, and when he goes in there, there's an angel. Nobody told him about the angel. He's never heard about the angel. Is this, is this, is this normal? Like, um, so standing to the right of the altar of incense, uh, there's this huge this angel. And Zacharias was troubled, naturally, when he saw the angel. angel. Fear gripped him. I, I, we can, we can only imagine what he's experiencing. Like he was to go in there, light the incense, the smoke goes up. It's a picture of prayer before the Lord that God hears our prayers, all the people are praying. This is like a, 
you know, we'll call it a one-minute job. Give yourself about three minutes so you can take in the insights since you never get to see it again, take all the mental snapshots, and then basically get out of there. Well, his little excursion is going to take a little bit longer. Uh, verse 13, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, uh, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. I, um, so first he says, relax, it's okay. Uh, don't be afraid, calm down. Uh, your, your prayers ha- have been answered. I, I'm sure in the past that I have linked his prayers uh, to the childless, which I'm sure that was a prayer for a long time, but I'm less convinced today that when the angel says your prayers have been heard, that it's linked to their being childless. Um, I, th- I think now that if, it was, if, the, if the answer to their prayer was the child, I think it would have said four. Um, not and. This is a separate thing. This is um, what, what I now believe when he says, for your petition has been heard, I, I, I think that he's now an old man. He's living during this really, really dark time. God hasn't spoken through a prophet in over 400 years. Um, when I look at elderly believers today, and over recent years, I've, there's just something different. I mean, um, I don't want to name, I'll, I'll name those who have gone before us. I think of like guys like George Farrington who are really influential during my, t- my time here that t- towards the end, I, I, there was like a, like a heartbrokenness over watching our, our culture and the world sort of fall apart and, and the, the longing in, in, their, in his heart, sort of for the Lord's return, I, I think probably because he realized that he was getting close, like closer uh, to the Lord, to, to seeing the Lord, um, just this longing for the Lord to return. I think of guys like Chuck Smith. If you, uh, if you follow the course of Chuck Smith, there's like two Chuck Smiths historically. Like if you look at the beginning of his life, there's one Chuck Smith. Then towards the end of life, Chuck Smith becomes like a different person, like not a different person, but, it, but his emphasis was very different, and I think it had to do with his age. Um, I, I think that the, the clue to support why I think this, if you'll turn with me over to chapter 2. Now, as we fast forward to chapter 2, we'll, we'll meet a guy, Simeon, in chapter 2, verses 25. Now, we fast forwarded. Jesus has now been born. <clears throat> and in verse 25, we, we, we're going to meet this guy, Simeon, and this girl, Anna who are two very old people, and we actually get insight to the longing of the heart and their, their prayers and what they were longing for. And I don't think it's a stretch to say that Zacharias and Elizabeth's prayers were, were very similar because I, like, I don't know any 80-year-olds or 85-year-olds that are like really praying like, Lord, if you would just give me a baby right now. <laughs> like, <clears throat> like I, I don't. Like, so and I don't think that they were, like, praying, like, like, still fervently on their knees, like, Lord, if you just give us a baby, like, just before we die, like, if you could just. <clears throat> now, verse 25 of chapter 2, and there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit, into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. His father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary and his father, Behold, this child is appointed 
for the fall and rise of many in Israel and a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. And she was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple serving night and day with fasting and prayers. And at that moment, she came and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Okay, then they go back to Galilee. So we see these two elderly people. We get insight to their hearts. They've seen King Herod. They've seen the evil and destruction that they've done. Their their nation is so longing for the Messiah. And they want the darkness to end. And the only way they can see this is for the Messiah to come. And so it seems that the prayer of their hearts is, Maranatha, come, Lord. So now the angel, when he looks at Zechariah and he says, your petition has been heard, I think what he's saying is the Messiah is on the way. God has been silent for 400 years, but now the light is going to enter the darkness. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. And he will drink no wine or liquor and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while he was in his mother's womb. So this is whether or not John was uh, an actual, like took the Nazarite vow, like his, like the, the Nazarite vow found in number six, this was a voluntary thing that people would do for a temporary period. And so here we're told uh, before the conception, the angel tells him that your son's going to take the Nazarite valve and, and he's going to live this way and he's going to set himself apart for the Lord. He's going to be an oddball. And he's going to be an oddball because he has a very important message to give to the world. And he, he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit at conception, which is not normal. Um, even to this day. If, uh, back then, the Spirit of God would come upon you when he felt like coming upon you, and he could come and go. Uh, to Today, the Spirit of God indwells an individual at belief. And so he's told that the Holy Spirit is going to be on this child at conception. Verse 16, And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. Verse 17, Uh, It is he who will go as a forerunner before him, that's the Messiah in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts and fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So here we have, he's quoting from Malachi chapter 3 that this forerunner is going to come and Zacharias is in the temple thinking he's going to do his one little minute job this angel appears to him and says, your prayers have been answered and now your wife's going to be pregnant and the son, you're going to name John, which isn't a family name, but don't worry about that. And he is going to fulfill what Malachi speaks of. When God last spoke, he's going to fulfill this. And his job is to turn the sons of Israel back to their God. Huge task. And Zacharias said to the angel, how will I know this for certain? This seems to be a pretty realistic question. Um, But it was embodied in a lack of faith, a lack of trust. We're going to see Mary's reaction when Gabriel approaches her, that hers is going to be very different. He says, for I'm a man, I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Like, can you give me a sign? Is there anything that you can do so that when I go out there and explain this, But clearly, Gabriel's not happy about this. Verse 19, and the angel answered and said to him, dude, I'm Gabriel. (laughs) Like, what more of a sign do you need? I'm the angel Gabriel. I, I stand in the presence of God. He has sent me to you to give you this message and to bring you this good news. This is interesting. Good news, euangelion, the The gospel. And you're asking for a sign? (laughs) 
Okay, how about <laughs> you can't speak? That'll be good. You're going to walk out and you're not going to be able to tell anybody. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in the proper time. He got a sign. Verse 21, oh yeah, the people are still out waiting for Zacharias. He's, I don't know how long this whole thing took, but it took a lot longer than it was supposed to take. But it's not like people can just go barge into the temple. Like You can't just like, hey, you okay in there? There's like the, the one bathroom house and there's a line of 20 people. You know, maybe that was your Thanksgiving, like waiting. Like, hey, what? there's a whole line of people, kids. Can we kind of, kind of go in? You know, like no, nobody can barge in on him. There's, there's, they're just outside waiting. Wondering at his delay in the temple, like what in the world is happening in there? But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs, like he's playing charades. I, I don't know if he's doing this to his, like, I don't know if it's like, how do you do charades to, to like this one? And he remained mute. And when the days of his priestly service were ended, so he spent the rest of the week there and he went back home. And after these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant. And she kept herself in seclusion for five months. I, I always see this and I, you know, I, I think of the, 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 the first time pregnancy or the, the pregnancy that follows like a number of miscarriages. Um, and then the, the lady gets pregnant and then they see the heartbeat. And it's like, oh, I'm just going to put myself on bed rest and I don't like to world stay out there because I have one job. And I want this to go well. So we don't, we don't know her history. We don't know she had miscarriages. We don't know. All we know is she's an old lady that, that never had a child. And you bet she's going to give the best oven possible for this child to like, she's in seclusion for five months. She wants everything to go well. This is a beautiful, sweet time for her. And she says in verse 25, this is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace amongst men. That, that all of this difficulty that she went through, that she viewed as disgrace, she now gets to the end of the story, she looks back and she thinks, what a wonderful gift that God has given me. All of those years, I thought I had difficulty, all of those years that were filled with disgrace and my shame and my sorrow at, at the end to now see what God is doing. And I think that's so much how life is. Like we, we get so narrowed down in the immediate stresses and strains of life and, and so caught up in the worry that we don't step back and see like, you know what, God's doing something. And it might not be, it might not be uh, enjoyable at the time. I, I might have a lot of, hurt and anger and bitterness right now. But maybe, just maybe, God's doing something in the midst of this that he's preparing for you later that you can't even see. And I just love her. I, I love her words. To, uh, take away my disgrace. This is what God did for her. This is what Jesus has done for me in my own life. I look back at all the stupidity and, and folly of my younger life and to think that God took it away. And he took away my disgrace. He gave me grace. And he's, he's blessed me wonderfully. And he's done all of that for us in Christ, the greatest gift th that any of us could receive. When I look at this story, there's too many things to point out, like, like historically. Like I can show you pictures of the temple, of King Herod's temple, because King Herod existed. There's a temple because King Herod built this temple. There's a, there's a temple there because... This all happened, like this happened. There was a priest in line. There were priests that went in there. They were priests that did the off. Like, they know all of this. This isn't like it was happening in a hidden corner somewhere and some guy gets some vision and then he tells us the world and he's a really good storyteller. This, this is set and tied and anchored in history and geography. And now we're 2,000 years later and they're digging in the ground. And they still find things. They find everything that they find 
confirms the testimony of Scripture. Like, this isn't make-believe. This isn't just some made-up story to make us feel better. And when we look at John the Baptist, his whole entry was to prepare the hearts of men. And as we go into the Advent season, this time of waiting, this time of um, reflection, this time, it was supposed to slow us down. It's the irony of what this season has become. But, but the Advent season was to slow us down, to, focus, to force us to focus and to contemplate on the Advent of Christ, His coming, His first Advent. And now as we wait, we're waiting and pondering, but we're thinking about His second coming because we're told that He's going to return. And as we look at the name of Zacharias, we're reminded that God is faithful. Uh, He's not slow about his promise, Peter tells us, but that he's patient, desiring all of us uh, to come to faith in Christ. Let's pray. And Father, we do thank you for the story. We thank you for, um, Lord, in the midst of the darkness of King Herod and the darkness of the world at that time, Uh, to see that you are working and moving and doing something great. Lord, it's easy in our lives to look at the darkness. The the newspapers are so filled with with just evil and horrific things. It can can terrify us. It can can seize our our desire to be out, that we want to bury ourselves in our house and hide and, and just be in fear. And, and so, Lord, we know that's not what you want. Uh, we thank you that you are great, that you are uh, this awesome God who is moving presently in the darkness. Peter tells us that there are scoffers who will scoff and make fun of those who believe. And he reminds us of your character and your nature, that you're faithful, that you're reliable, um, and that Jesus will come back in due time. And so, Father, we ask that as we wait patiently for him, as we're reminded of his first coming uh, during the month of December, Father, I pray that you would help us to be hopeful, that we would look to his return, to remember his majesty and his greatness, and that we truly would sing, uh, Come, Lord Jesus, come. We long for you. We desire you. We pray this in his good name. Amen.